Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people who live, work and create in Somerset. My name is Lewis Webb and each week I get to share the stories of some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. We're back for a new season with 14 fantastic guests lined up ready to share their lives and insights. Plus we've got a brand new game to play to test their Somerset knowledge to the limits. As ever, your comments, reviews and feedback are always appreciated. And if you'd like to send us a message, you can email hello at somersetstories.com. My guest this week is an independent art dealer with a specialism in 20th century British art, Freya Mitten. Having spent over a decade in charge of the modern British sales department at Sotheby's in London, Freya now works from her home on the edge of the Mendips. Exhibiting at art fairs around the country, her aim is to sell great quality paintings by established artists and she is passionate about helping clients find and acquire artworks which they can enjoy in their home and lives. We chatted earlier this month and covered everything from Bristol Street Art to this year's Halloween costumes. Freya, welcome to Somerset Stories. Thank you, thank you very much for having me. It's Halloween season. Yes. Do you get involved with any of that? Do you know what? We do, yes, we do. Apart from last year, obviously, with COVID, we couldn't. Um, But uh, yes, the children um, from when we arrived in Somerset have always gone trick-or-treating in the local village. And actually the village are very organized about it. They um, they make sure that only only people that want callers um, get people knocking on their doors and, uh, and they go around in groups and it finishes quite early in the evening and then everybody ends up in the pub. So yes, yeah, we do get involved. Although I think probably this year will be our final year because uh, they're getting a bit, our children are getting a bit too old for that right. now. <laughs> do you know what costumes they're gonna have this year? Do you know what? Yes, uh, the uh, youngest one is going as a chicken. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I think it's, he always used to go as a chicken. So because it's the last year they're going to they're gonna go, he's decided to go as a chicken. So yes. Thank you so much for hosting me in your lovely home here. How long have you been here? We have been here 10 and a half years now. So just over 10 years. Um, yes, we moved down from London where we were living before that. So Regular listeners will know that if I'm meeting someone in an old house, I will always ask about its history. So do you know anything about this home's past? Actually, yes, we do, because we didn't buy it from the people that have been here for a, the most significant length of time. We bought it from someone, some developers that had bought it from them. But prior to the developers, it was owned by an artist and his family. Um, the artist's name was Anthony Rossiter. And he lived here with his wife, Annika, and they had a studio within the house. So it's it's like a cottage, but with a barn attached at one end. So all the rooms at one end are very small and little and cottagey. And then the other end is a barn, which lends itself to um, an artist studio because it's very light. It has big, big, wide floor to ceiling windows upstairs and downstairs. And it was an artist studio for 45 years. Before we get into your story, for those who might not know this particular pocket of Somerset very well, what are your recommendations for a day in... Are we in the Chew Valley? We're sort of the beginning of the the Chew River, aren't we? We're sort of on the edge of the Chew Valley. Um, We literally have the river kind of outside the house. and Chew Valley Lake is very close. There's a lovely sailing club there, which we're members of, and that's that's really good fun. Um, from here, we all go into Wells. Um, it's a you know as a city, Wells is great. Um, fantastic charity shops, um, which the teenagers absolutely love. Uh, and the cathedral itself is 
is beautiful and there are a lot of things that go on in Wells. You know, the music is obviously a massive highlight um, and it's a, it's a beautiful city. So yes, um, other places that we go, I mean, we're within striking distance of Bath and Bristol as well. And then there's beautiful countryside, um, both Mendips and the Blackdown Hills and yeah, with the Quantocks and so on. It's all within striking distance of this area. So we're very lucky. Yeah, I suppose we're sort of, all of those things are yes, relatively accessible, aren't they? Yes, and I suppose we chose to live here because it's, it is quite it is quite accessible to lots of places. You know, you're, you're very close, you're close enough to go to work in Bristol or in Bath. Um, you can access all the schools that, that are sort of further out of those cities and you've got access to the, to the countryside um, and you're still within, well, you can just about go to London and back in a day. It's a bit of a trek, but you can. And Tewton Mendip itself is a lovely little picturesque village as well, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Well, we're in between the two villages of Tewton Mendip and Lytton. Um, Tewton Mendip is very bustly with um, a busy pub and a village shop and a, a really great primary school, um, which is where the children were at school. And um, Lytton has a has a very a very lovely pub, which has just been all redone and is very popular. A lot of people come out from Bath and Bristol to, to visit there. Um, but it doesn't have a shop or, or a village school. So the Lytton, people from Lytton go to Tewton Mendip. So it's a nice area. I've had to do a little bit of digging about your background because your biography on your website is relatively short. <laughs> By my calculations, you're a child of the 70s? Yes, yes, I am. Uh, I was born in 1976. So I'm 45 this year. And uh, yes, I'm quite pleased that you couldn't find too much on <laughs> website um, or by googling me normally you can find out most things you want to know uh, but I'm quite pleased you couldn't find that out although you probably can now. <laughs> what was your family life like growing up? Uh, I grew up in the Cotswolds and um, I'm one of four. Uh, I've got an older sister, a younger sister and a younger brother and um, yes we had a very happy family life. Did you venture down to Somerset on family holidays? I came here once. Um, I used to enjoy singing a lot as a child. And um, when I was singing with a choir from Cheltenham, uh, we came and sang Evensong at Wells Cathedral and it had a massive impact. Um, so that's part of the reason, as well as the fact that I met my husband at university in Bristol, that's part of the reason we chose this area to come back to. Were your parents musical? Did they encourage you into that? Not particularly, pastime? no, no, not particularly. My husband's family was very musical and uh, and he's very musical. So uh, that's sort of probably why we've gone more that way. My parents, we were very into horses, so I've, um, which I still have now. But, uh, so you learned to ride quite young then? Yes, absolutely. So that's that's something that's been a joy living in Somerset to have the the space and the ability to do that and the countryside around here is absolutely beautiful we just you know ride out from from the house um, and the hacking is is fabulous so lucky were your parents professionally involved in in that no no, no it was a pastime okay um, my father doing? was a surgeon um, he's retired now he was an orthopedic surgeon as is my sister um, so uh, he was very helpful because um, any sort of accidents or whatever, he'd be able to most of the time tell you you were right or not or needed to go into hospital or whatever. Um, but yes, um, and my mother 
used to work for a silver dealer many years ago. So being one of four, that's yes. quite a busy family life. <laughs> yes, yes, certainly is. We all do very different things, but we all live um, within within a sort of close um, close area so that we can see each other quite a lot. We go on holiday together and um, I stay with my brother and his wife when I'm in London uh, for work. Um, and my sister, one sister lives very near um, the fair in Western Burt, so I always stay with her for that fair. And the other sister I see, she works in London and in Gloucestershire, so I see her in between the fairs as well. Do you remember being exposed to art from a young age? Were you taken to museums and galleries and that kind of thing? I think I was exposed to art mostly because my father used to collect 18th and 19th century watercolours. So I used to go with him when he was considering whether or not he should buy another one for his collection. Um, and then I really fell in love with art and history of art when I took it as a subject for A-level. Uh, so that was really the point at which I decided. I mean, I, I took a GCSE in art, but at that point realised I wasn't very good at doing the art myself and was more interested in, you know, looking at other people's art and interpreting it and enjoying enjoying the process of, of kind of analysing a work and so on. So uh, that was the point at which I really decided. Were there any particular works in your father's collection that you do remember or have a sort of... <laughs> Uh, Funnily <laughs> enough, I, I I have to say my father's collection, and uh, he'll probably listen to this and laugh, but he had a lot of sort of cows crossing streams and that kind of thing. Um, so, I, I mean, he did have some beautiful Michelangelo Rooker watercolours as well. Um, but the things that really struck me were in my mother's collection. She had bought um, th a group of three uh, works by Guy Taplin, who um, painted, who carved, uh, well, they're like decoy ducks, but they're far more artistic. They're far more um, carefully formed and shaped and they're, they're a lot more, they're a lot finer than decoy ducks. And um, my mother had bought a collection of three of those, which I have always absolutely loved. I'm guessing, and you talked a little bit about choosing history of art uh, at A-level, but yeah. I recall sort of going through career days and doing that those questionnaires maybe a few years before then maybe around sort of 15 16 and I'm guessing that if you did that at school art dealer wasn't an option that came up no definitely not um, it is a slightly unusual career but I've come into it I'm definitely a gamekeeper, gamekeeper turned poacher as they say I came into it via the auction rooms so um, my my, the thing I really wanted to do initially was to be an auctioneer. Um, my grandfather was a cattle auctioneer in Ludlow. And so I used to go and watch him take auctions. And I used to love the buzz of sale day and that communication and the, all the sort of fun that happens when, you know, a lot makes more than you think it's going to and it flies and, the, you know, and, and it's, you know, the, the banter between all the dealers and all the sort of relationships that go on. I used to absolutely love that. And so it was really... I really wanted to be in an auction house and it was just very that very coincidental and a happy coincidence I suppose that I then enjoyed and had an affinity with art history um, and the two came together for me to go and work with in an auction house. It must have been fascinating seeing your grandfather I suppose imposing his own character on the space because it is such a uh, there's so much going on um, at things like cattle auctions as yes. well having to 
you know, be be such a dominant personality in, in that. Yes, well, it certainly made an impression. I must have been quite young, so it made an impression and I always remembered it. So, um, yes, I think it was it was a fun, it's, it's a, you know, it's an atmospheric place to be, isn't it? By the time you went to university, was that a relatively clear picture of where you wanted to end up after that? Um, yes. Yes, I wasn't sure which area I wanted to specialise in, um, but I knew that I wanted to work within the art world. And I had an understanding of auction houses, auction auctioneers, um, which kind of got me started. Um, but I, you know, the, the joy of, I suppose, being at university was that you could choose different different subject a number of different subjects and kind of work through them and work out what you were actually more genuinely interested in um but even then when I started my first job I wanted to be an old master specialist so <laughs> that didn't quite work out <laughs> but things change I suppose while you were at university at that time British art was going through quite an interesting dynamic with the likes of Damien Hirst Tracy Emin kind of coming to the forefront of that was that a movement that you connected with at the time I remember going to Sensation and being absolutely blown away and thinking, oh my goodness, I cannot understand this. I mean, I, I understood it. I sort of read the catalogue. I, But I mean, that's not an art I ever wanted to deal in because I've always wanted to deal in something that you would hang in your own home. Um, I want to... I would. My aim is to buy pictures that I would happily sell to friends and family, um, works that you can live with, works that will endure, works that can be inherited by your children, th things that you, things that have a sort of um, a life of their own, a sort of a collector, a collectible nature of their own. And the Sensation exhibition and Damien Hirst was completely the opposite of that and that helped that was probably why I went to decide I wanted to deal in old masters which was a little bit extreme and I'm glad I didn't go down that path because I wouldn't have ended up of being able to deal like I now do. Also being based in Bristol again during that period there was a, a sort of tremendous rise in the counterculture of the city of street art graffiti um, Again, if you, even if you weren't necessarily tuned into that, was that something that you could observe and think actually this is a really interesting dynamic for the way in which art is being created and consumed by people? I was very aware of it and I was very aware of the commercial nature of it um, because a lot of the, a lot of the um, street art was being, was being made into sort of limited edition prints and posters and, you know, things that were very um affordable and so that sort of that sort of side of it was something I noticed um but I didn't I didn't get that involved in it because it wasn't something that I wanted to have in my own home. You mentioned that you started your career in the auction houses can you tell me a little bit more about that? Uh well when I left university I didn't manage to get into my uh, first choice of um, auction house. I'd, I'd applied for the graduate training scheme. In fact, what, in my last year at um, Bristol, I applied for the graduate training scheme at Sotheby's. 
and I went through a number of quite grueling interviews um, for which I thought I thought I was quite well prepared, but I I didn't get in, which was a um, bit of a bit of a kind of a, a tricky tricky thing at the time. And I thought, oh gosh, well I still definitely want to do this. And uh, the other auction houses didn't really have graduate training schemes, so and I wanted to be in London, so I went and approached Bonhams. Who, um, who were very good actually and said, well, we don't have, you know, an a, a opening for a graduate, but we do have positions for porters. So if you want to come along and move stuff around, you'll, <laughs> you'd be more than welcome. So I did that. And, uh, and actually, it was the best thing I ever did because you're handling everything. So you're setting up the sales, you're you know, taking the pictures up from the valuation counter into the departments. You're, you know, you're you're working. You're polishing the silver, setting up furniture sales, turning the rugs on the carpet viewings. I mean, everything. And it was brilliant in terms of kind of getting a base level knowledge of understanding art and antiques and how the different department work, different departments work, what falls into each category. You know, and being able to tell quality or being able to spot damage or being able to, I don't know, just, I mean, I remember, I remember the most important, one of the most important things I learned was how to stack pictures. Nobody, you know, nobody at university tells you that, you know, in order not to damage them, you know, front to front, back to back and, you know, as, as vertical as you can. Nobody ever tells you that. Um, but uh, so that was a really good thing to um good place to start. And I was a porter for nearly a year there before I got my first job as a junior cataloguer. Were the other porters people who wanted to do a similar thing, sort of get in on the ground floor and learn the trade? No, no, not at all. Uh, it was... It was a... It was a real mix. Um, and that was... Uh, you know, there were there were the people, the, the main operations managers, and, and that was, you know, that what they were doing and they, they weren't, you know, moving into a different area that's that's what they were in charge of and that and they were they were so generous with their time and expertise and there were some people that had seen it as a way in um but mostly that's that's what people were there to do and so when it came to that moving into a, a, a cataloging role yeah was that something that you had to fight for and stick your hand up? Not really, because I'd been around and kind of working with the people that uh, needed a needed someone to move into the department. So um, they'd seen that I was oh, hardworking and that I was diligent and I wasn't going to go home till the job was done. So, uh, so it was an easier, in some ways, it was an easier way to get in. And then eventually, eventually Sotheby's came crawling back, didn't they? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, not quite. I did apply to them again. I swallowed my pride. No, they opened a sale room at Olympia, uh, which actually was far more what I was interested in doing. So the Olympia sale room was set up in 2000, about 2000, 2001. And it was to deal with what they class as the middle market. So works from £500 to about £15,000. Um, and they were looking for uh, a modern picture specialist. So um, they advertised and I applied and um, I moved there, um, gosh, after seven, six or seven years at Bonhams, I moved to Sotheby's. Um, and that was, yeah, that was a fun job as well. Were you responsible for the entire sales house at Olympia? What was your 
Uh, no, just pictures, um, 20th century pictures, basically. So when I started, um, it was to do contemporary prints, impressionists and modern British. But then as the department grew very quickly, I um, went down uh, the modern British route because that's where my my interests had very much kind of developed it that's what my interest had developed into um so then I ran the modern British sales at the the Olympia branch of Sotheby's. At that time what was on your radar in terms of your future where did you see yourself heading? Um to be this is going to sound awful I we I just got married um before I left Bonhams I was married and um and I thought I'd get married and have children and not go back to work um, I thought that that was what I would do. I was quite happy with that. And I thought that would be fun. And we'd move out to the country and, you know, uh, I'd bring the children, bring children up if we were lucky enough to have them, etc. But I hadn't really ever thought of, of, uh, of dealing. So throughout your auction career then at Bonhams and, and Sotheby's, were there any memorable auctions or pieces that you look back and think that was a real privilege to be in part of that? Yes, there really were. Um, yes, so many that I I feel incredibly lucky to have been involved in in working for such a such an important auction room um, because the opportunities were incredible. Um, I was very involved with the Shell Archive, um, selling the Shell Advertising Art Collection. So works by artists like Stanley Roy Badman and Tristan Hillier and Roland Hilda. And so on. There were some fabulous examples that that were designed for all of their art for their for their calendars, annual calendars, and um, it was a real privilege to bring those to auction and to see the sale through. The other sale that is very is very sort of fondly in my memory were the contents of the Croft Castle um, estate, which had some fantastic pictures, really wonderful works that had originally come from the New Art Centre, works by um, Mary Potter and William Scott, and just some really fine examples. And it was just lovely to, to handle them and to, to work with the collection as a whole. Um, but I was also very privileged to handle a lot of, a lot of artists' estates. Um, I did the estate of Robert Lenkovitz, I remember um, Daniel Goddard from Bairns Auctioneers was uh, rang me to say, uh, you know, uh, that the opportunity had come up, and I said, "Ah, oh, that's interesting. I'm not sure I, we can manage that at the moment." And put the phone down. And then he rang two days later and said, "Are you sure?" <laughs> and actually, he was quite right. I should have been dealing with it, but I just didn't have the sort of. But you know, he, yeah. Love him or hate him. He's a bit of a Marmite artist, you know, real sort of people love him or they really don't love him. Um, and uh, I was I was lucky to deal with that estate, which was actually a massively good experience in terms of um, how to handle a very large estate. And he had not only the collection of his paintings, but he also had a wonderful collection of books because he was a huge book collector. And obviously they, they, they didn't go through my department, but it was a real privilege to be involved with all of that. Um, I'm trying to think of the other artists' estates I dealt with. A number. It was so, and, and only through dealing with a huge number of works by the same artist do you really get a strong sense of that artist, of really knowing their work. 
very thoroughly. And so to, to handle, you know, the entire estate was, was a real privilege. Um, so yes, I feel very lucky. Your specialism of 20th century British art yeah. takes in so many different influences and movements. You've got yes. post-impressionists at the beginning of the century in the Bloomsbury group. You've got figurative people like Freud and Francis Bacon. You've got pop art, David Hockney. What is it for you that ties all these things together? <laughs> Do you know what? It is literally... I buy what I love and what I'm happy to live with in my own home. I wouldn't sell something if I wouldn't have it in my own home. So that's the thing that ties together the pieces that I choose to, to handle. Um, you know, they most of them are by Royal Academicians. If they're not by Royal Academicians, then they're by very well-known artists that have an established auction record. Um, so I don't want to deal in in contemporary artists that have no backup to their um, prices. So that if they're in, you know, if there's no um, precedent for their work appear, appealing at, appearing at auction, then I probably wouldn't handle them um, unless it's a particularly good, strong subject or something like that. Um, but yes, it's a it's a complicated period in art history. Um, I tend to deal in the very much like like my specialising at Olympia. I tend to deal in the more what 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 um, the art market calls the more affordable end of it. So in the kind of you know sub ten thousand pound mark. Obviously, I do sell things that are over that value, um, but the majority of the pictures I sell are, are under ten thousand. Um, so they're more. Um, more things that people can realistically live with. Um, so I tend not to be selling Freud or Bacon <laughs> or any of those artists. Although, you know, obviously I will always go and enjoy the exhibitions. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking you can still, you can appreciate those things and still have a thought on how, how they all fit together. Absolutely. And, and how maybe even some of the, the artists that you, that you work with and that you deal yeah. are are related uh, yes exactly from, from an artistic perspective yes yes absolutely and um yeah it's 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 lovely to see the influences of various artists that were working together or alongside or perhaps 10 years after or so on you can you can see the influences running through the history of modern british art and it's good to be able to pick up on one or two things in each picture speaking of the history of the art obviously that ties in really really closely with the history of britain and kind of what britain was going through yes absolutely in in the last uh 100 or so years so you know the beginning of the 20th century you've got the death of queen victoria and yep. then there's the end of the empire the role in the world wars and and britain kind of re-looking at its role in the world at, at large from an art history perspective how does that play out in what people are creating? Mainly the works that I have and that I'm handling are impacted more by the Second World War than by the First, just purely because um, that those are, the, those are the works that I tend to deal in more regularly. 
Um, and actually, I will deal in Keith Vaughan's. I've got a work in stock at the moment that's um, a drawing that Keith Vaughan did at Belford Camp. And um, so it was where he was where he was based during the Second World War. I don't have it here, otherwise I'd show you. Um, it's just being reframed at the moment. So, you you know, they can, they're influenced by the subject matters. Um, because I tend to deal with pictures that you live it live with, I don't tend to go for anything too gritty and too difficult um, because I think that it's quite hard to live, it can be quite hard to live with some of the more post-war aggressive sort of neo-romantic works can be quite hard and I I personally would prefer to live with something a little more light-hearted and colourful. Yeah there is that you know how how much do you want to be emotionally challenged by the art that's in your house every day versus yes, yes I will go and consider and contemplate things in a gallery um, and just sort of let those things wash over me as well. Exactly. Is that something which you find actually complements a world, a, an artistic world that you can create around yourself? So, you know, you want to be influenced and and exposed to art that is positive in the home, but also be able to to go out there into the world and and sort of challenge yourself in a safe environment, yes. almost. Yeah. No, I I really I really enjoyed going to see the Paula Rego exhibition recently at the Tate. I think it's the last weekend of it this this weekend because they're not works that I could ever live with because the scale of them is so enormous. They're sort of eight foot by ten foot. They're huge, huge works. And so I, you know, I enjoyed seeing them because I would never, I mean, from a value point of view, I'd never handle them, but I could never handle something of that scale because I can't lift it, I can't move it, I, and you know, it's not it's not practical. Um, but then I can handle you know, limited edition prints, lithographs, that kind of thing. I don't tend to deal in prints, but, you know, um, because of because of how much of an impression the exhibition made, I'm more swayed to deal in her work. Mm. And that's what I enjoy. I, I like the flexibility of being able to deal in what I want to deal in. So we're now out of the 20th century. Okay. By, by quite a while. Um, have you kept your finger on sort of how the scene how artists have continued to evolve into into this century yes absolutely and actually it's been really interesting watching the the sort of fascination or the 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 re-emergence of painting in contemporary art now i really love seeing some of those painters that are emerging. Um, Chandel Joff, for example, I think is an absolutely fantastic painter. And there are a number of others as well um, that I just think are, are really very good painters. And the fact that they return to painting now is oh, wonderful to see because I, I love the, the skill and the sort of the fact the fact that that you can live with them. Um, but I will always deal in the period in which I I do now because I I believe that um, the value that I have to add to um, the pictures is in my expertise in the knowledge that I've gained from being in the same market for 22, three years now. Um, you know, during that time, I've seen endless works by the same artists. So, so I know 
I can compare them to ones that I've seen before. I can, um, you know, I'm able to, to assess things and say whether or not it's right or, or, or what, um, you know, whether or not it's a good example, etc. because of the experience I've had looking at other ones in the past. You mentioned earlier that your road to independence, I suppose, started with getting married and seeing this journey ahead where you weren't necessarily tied to London, you weren't tied to auction houses, but maybe your independence at that time was a little bit more, well, I want to be free from all forms of, of work and, and dealing. So what was what was the point where you started thinking about actually I would quite like to do this, but for myself? Well, I was very lucky in that um, Sotheby's were a brilliant company. And while I was there, I had three children and each time went on maternity leave. And it was only on the third maternity leave that it became obvious that I wasn't going to be able to go back to work. Um, and at that point, we moved to Somerset. And I thought that I wouldn't go back to work, but it's it's by that point I'd been an auction house specialist for sort of I suppose fifteen or sixteen years by then, and I was I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed handling the pictures and found it very hard to let go. And a lot of the people that I was dealing with on a day to day basis had become really good friends. So a lot of the collectors, a lot of the you know a lot of the other specialists in the field. That kind of thing. You there's a there's a real community, and so I felt like I couldn't. I didn't really let it go. So when we moved here, I thought actually, I do. I do. I mean, I I started dealing slightly by default because people would ring and say, I'm looking for um, a work by John Wells from the 1960s. Do you know where I can find one? And I'd think, oh, actually, yes, I do. I know where I can find. An example of that and then I'd go and you know ring the collector and say would you be interested and they'd say oh, all right and then so it, and then it built to a point where I couldn't not sort of legitimize it and um, at that point um, I started dealing and I registered for VAT and so on um, but I still wasn't making very much money and so I worked for someone else at the same time as dealing and that worked quite well having the two things running alongside each other until the dealing built up to a point where after a year where I couldn't manage doing both things at the same time wearing both hats so then I then I started dealing full-time and that was nearly 10 years ago now. What considerations beyond the the practical and sort of setting up VAT and all that kind of stuff did you did you have to to, to think about I suppose you know being a a parent and setting up a a business um, in whatever shape is always a difficult one, right? Yeah, it certainly is. Um, but actually, it's luckily dealing's quite flexible. So I could work as and when I wanted to and pick up the phone when I wanted to and not when I didn't, <laughs> not when I didn't have time. The only things that were tricky were, were doing the fairs um, because then I would ha be away for a few days. But actually, my mother was brilliant. My parents were very good and came and looked after the children who were then very young uh, so that I could disappear off for a few days to go and do some fairs and had I not been able to do that it would have been quite hard um, but most of the time I could work it around what I was doing and that seemed to work quite well. When you were looking to put down routes outside of London was Somerset at the top of the list? It made its way to the top of the list um, for a number of reasons we've got 
family in Cornwall and family in Gloucestershire. And my husband got a job in Bristol. So it was sort of, it meant that geographically those things sort of drew us into an area. And then when we came and drove around the area, we realised how beautiful it was, especially sort of on bordering on the Chew Valley is just stunning countryside. So, so that's when we started looking for a house. In the time that you've been here, the area's art scene itself has also, you know, developed quite a lot, hasn't it's it? It's exploded. It's been extraordinary. Um, when we first moved, I mean, I, I found, a, well, I didn't find. He was here and was very well established, a framer in Froome, Geraint Davis, who's absolutely brilliant. Um, and he, he was saying how much it had changed since he'd moved 15 years prior to that. And, you know, now looking back, looking Looking back, you know, Hauser and Worth have arrived. There are a, num- a number of galleries all around the countryside, all sort of dotted around Somerset that are just fantastic in quality. And um, it's really revolutionised the area. So what does a typical week look like for an independent art dealer? <laughs> uh, a lot of driving, actually, <laughs> to be honest with you. I drive a lot, which is uh, why I love podcasts. Um, but uh, so I I do about 12 fairs a year generally um, in London and also in the countryside. So um, once, probably for one week every month, I'll be away at an art fair, um, which means I'm staying away and exhibiting during the day and the fairs open to the public and so on. In between times, I have to do a lot of boring paperwork. Nobody ever tells you that bit about um, about being an art dealer. It all sounds quite glamorous, but actually there's a lot of kind of, there's a lot of paperwork, more so now than there was when I first started. So there's the artist resale right to pay on every single work that I sell. Um, then, of course, all my accounts and so on and, you know, mailing lists and so on. But then more recently, um, since the new anti-money laundering legislation came in, I have to make sure that if anyone spends over a certain amount, I've got to take their identification and a photo ID and, a, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's something. So sort of keeping on top of all that is very important in between. And also visits. So visits to buy and visits to sell. So... Um, you know, people will call and say, you know, people I know, generally speaking, rather than after blue, will call and say, you know, they're, they're rationalising their collection and they'd like to let a few pieces go and would I like to come and have a look? Um, and then I'll go and see them and make some offers on things. Or people will say, I've seen a number of things on the website, can't really choose, can't make it to the next fair, will you bring them to show me in the house? So like this morning, I went down to just the other side of Taunton and took eight pictures with me to show them and try in the house. And then so that's what I'm generally doing in between, as well as walking the dog and riding the horses. <laughs> you mentioned the process of rationalising a collection. Yes. How do you reach a conclusion? How do you make that decision? Um, generally speaking, I think when when you're living with a picture, you you tend to fall more and more in love with it or fall less and less in love with it, fall out of love with it. Um, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're living with something, you just think, either you think, oh, I can never hang that picture in quite the right place. It never looks quite how it did when I bought it at the fair or I never, never looks quite how I, am, I imagined that it would when I initially, you know, initially found it. Um, and those are the pictures that people tend to sell, the ones that, you know, they just 
cut, bought, bought, you know, in a, in a funny mood or, or, you know, sometimes it's, it's because they, they want to help their children put a deposit down on a house or, or they've got a wedding to pay for or something like that. And that's the lovely thing about, you know, the things that I'm dealing with, they have a sort of intrinsic value that you can, you can cash in on if, if that's what you need to do. To some extent, recently, there's been a democratisation of the art world. So artists can do a lot of more self-promoting online, using social media, and events like the Affordable Art Fair have made starting a collection arguably more accessible. But do you still see there being barriers to people taking that first steps, either as, as commercial artists or as collectors? No, I think I think that social media has opened up a whole new world of collecting and as has as has the affordable art fair, you know, everything is available. There's there's a there's a huge choice, um, that a you know, a wide number of options of things that you can go for. And I think as long as you're not thinking about something maintaining its value in the long term, then you should just buy what you love. Do you think there's elements, do you think things like social media and artists being able to go direct has had a positive ex- impact on the industry? It's opened things out more. The one thing that I'd say about the arts industry is that people are worried constantly because there is no real sort of governing body. There's no real sort of, well, there are laws that sort of surround it, but there's no sort of, it's, oh yeah, it's largely unregulated. Um, is what what I would say about it. it is it is largely unregulated the art world. So I would say that social media opens things out more. You know, it's it's far more transparent. All those sorts of access to everything online has meant that you know it opens out far more access to people, which is a really really good thing. Um, I mean, I I don't know how you would begin to choose to look for a painting if you're looking online because you know and that's that's I think why you then go to, to a dealer because you trust their taste and you trust their expertise um, and actually when you're looking not to be you're looking to try and be careful in an un- unregulated market you should look for um, memberships of associations so uh, the BADA and Lapada are the two main um, associations that an art dealer should be a member of. Excitingly, you've got an event just around the corner. What can you tell me about that? Uh, yes, I'm going to Olympia, which is um, the art fair, which is the Winter Art and Antiques Fair at Olympia on Hammersmith Road in London. And that opens next Monday and is open the whole of the following week until the, tu- until the Sunday, the 7th of November. I am really looking forward to seeing some of my London clients who I haven't had a chance to see since the lockdowns. Um, I have done a London fair since things reopened, um, but it was quite early on in September and I know that a few people were away. So I know a few more people will be around for for the Olympia fair and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing them. There's, there is this kind of relationship that you build up with people that buy and collect art and and I really enjoy discussing their collections with them and you know whether or not they've had something reframed and whether or not they've moved the position where it's hanging in their home or whatever and just just hearing how how um how things are and to your point earlier around seeing things seeing works in real life yes rather than just 
browsing through people's galleries on the internet? Absolutely. I think the one thing that I'd say about browsing through people's galleries on the internet is that you cannot tell scale. You just can't tell how big things are. And, you know, they're all, they, for all intents and purposes, everything is like a postage stamp, you know? Everything is the same size. And even when you blow it up so you can see a finer, higher resolution image of it, you, it's no bigger... It's, it's no, there's no more sense of how big it is. That's the other thing social media is really good for is because you can post a number of different images. You can post one with an apple in it. That's what a lot of the furniture dealers do. And then, and then you can see how big the piece of furniture is because you can see that an apple is not going to be that small or that, or that much bigger. So it is good for you know, showing things in lots of different lights. I suppose the art dealing industry or world can have a, a flavour of elitism and the establishment that puts people off. What would be your recommendations for those who are looking to make their first footsteps into collecting or just trying things out? I would recommend to anyone that's starting to buy that they spend at least 12 months looking before they even make the first purchase. Really get to know the market, really get to understand who is dealing in different things and you know what you like and whether you still like it in 12 months time you know it's a bit like houses some things will stick on the market some things you know will be around for ages and then you'll see some things that i have that just sell boom 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 because they're they're, they're easy they're very commercial things whereas some things are a bit more academic a bit more you know of a specialist taste or whatever it's quite difficult to understand that unless you watch it for a while. So I would suggest if you're thinking of buying something, go to art fairs, go to art galleries, go and have a look around, you know, spend some time, like with everything, but everything takes time, spend some time, but then also build a relationship with a dealer so that you trust them and, you know, you if, if you like a, dealer, a particular dealer's taste, they're more likely to find things that you'll like in the future. Freya, we're now going to play Somerset Who's Who, which is the game where I give you people with a Somerset connection and two identities, one of which is their real identity, and the other is entirely made up. Okay. And you have to tell me which one you think is real. <laughs> this will be interesting. <laughs> so, I've got five names. Okay. And the first is Thomas Horner. So, was Thomas Horner A a journalist who was influential in covering the 1985 Westland affair, or B, the alleged subject of the nursery rhyme, Little Jack Horner? Uh, it's the second one. It is the second one. Yeah. Did you know that story? Uh, no, I didn't. I was guessing. Uh, it's over in Mel's. Okay. Yeah. Oh, no, There's loads of like nursery rhyme-based history over there because oh. they have Jack and Jill Hill as well. Right. I should go, I should, there's a very good pub there and also a lovely garden which does pizzas. But uh, I have, apart from that, I haven't explored it much. All right, second name is Mary Rand. So was Mary Rand A, a gold medalist for the long jump in the 1964 Olympics, or B, the first female helicopter pilot at RNAS Yeovilton? It's A. It is A? Yay. Did you know that one? Yes, I did know that one because... In the market square in Wells, there is, uh, in the pavement, it's laid out her how, how far she jumped. Very it's quite good. cool. Yeah. Very good. All right. Number three is Jeff Barrow. 
So is Jeff Barrow or was Jeff Barrow A, an award-winning chemist known for developing the typhoid vaccine, or B, a musician and part of the band Portishead? B. It is B. You're on a roll. Yay. <laughs> it all goes downhill from here. <laughs> all right, you've got two more to go and you're on 100% so far. Don't do that. No one in this season has, has done 100%. You're making me nervous. <laughs> okay. Name number four is Sheila Kitzinger. So was Sheila Kitzinger A, a jazz pianist from Taunton, or B, a natural childbirth activist and author? I really don't know. I'm going to go for A. It's B. Ah! <laughs> okay. That, that, uh, the record off. still Freshes stands. Off. No record one, still no stands. Under. Your last name is John Chubb. So was John Chubb A, an artist and mayor of Bridgewater, or B, the first lighthouse keeper at Burnham-on-Sea? I'm going for B. It's A. Oh, sorry, John Chubb, I haven't sorry, heard John of Chubb. you. I can't remember when, when he was an artist or okay. when he was the mayor of Bridgewater. So no. we'll let you off the hook for that. <laughs> it's fine. It all started well. <laughs> it did. It did. You got three in a row and it was all And it then the pressure was on I, I uh, yeah, flunked out. Yeah. <laughs> Before we go, where can people find out more about you, your work uh, and the art that you are curating, I suppose? Well, I have a website, which is just my name, freyamittenon.com. And then I'm also on Instagram, um, just forward slash Freya Mitten. Um, and uh, you can sign up to the mailing list on the website if you're interested in invitations to fairs and so on. Freya, thank you so much for your time and for hosting me. It's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. If you liked it, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on social media at Somerset Stories or email hello at somersetstories.com. Music on all Somerset Stories productions is created by Jazar. You can be found at betterwithmusic.com. See you next time.